0: The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony, Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind the curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts.
1: And I'm Carol Anderson. Renowned American conductor David Robertson is a visionary artist, creator, thinker, and educator. He's held leadership positions with numerous orchestras, St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, Sydney Symphony Orchestra, Orchestra Nationale de Lyon, to name just a few. As a guest, Maestro Robertson has appeared with the most prestigious orchestra and opera houses across the globe. He's also a passionate champion of contemporary music and is a founder of the electric guitar ensemble Another Night on Earth. Cutting down his bio to a few sentences was a huge challenge. Last December, USUO announced an exciting collaboration with Meister Robertson as he joins us in the newly created role of creative partner. David has carved out some time to chat with us as he rehearses the first of three programs he'll conduct this season, an exploration of the grimmest and most elevated thoughts of humanity through Act Three of Beres' opera Watzek and Beethoven's Glorious Ninth Symphony. Welcome to the podcast, David, and thanks for making space for us this
2: week. You're very welcome. And I'll have you know, this is the very first time I have been on a podcast. So not only am I the inaugural creative partner, this is my inaugural podcast debut. You
0: mean period? Period. That's incredible. I
2: know. Well, I've just kept a low profile. I I don't know
0: how you've skipped this phenomenon because you are one of the great thinkers in our business and you need to be talking. I was waiting for you. Thank you for being with us. There's so much to unpack in your bio that Carol just read, but I want to talk first about this idea of creative partner. This is a new role here at USUO. It's the first time it's happened. We're in a search for the music director, as you Mm -hmm. well know, and this role encompasses a very different kind of vision. So can you tell us a little bit about how you see this creative partnership and what the scope of your three weeks with us might be each year?
2: Well, when I was talking with the, um, the administration and the board, one of the things that was interesting was that they liked the fact that I had all of this experience and had done various different things. And, and I said, well, that's great. I really like working with the orchestra. So they said, well, how about if you sort of, if we did this on a sort of semi-permanent basis so that we have a first three-year contract and you come three times a year? I guess that's because all good things come in threes. Um, and so, you know, we worked, we worked out some of the ideas. Part of the reason um, I think I'm useful is that um, during the period where there isn't a music director, if they have questions about various different artistic aspects of the organization, I'm someone that they can use as a sounding board to talk about those things. Um, but more importantly, I think for the orchestra and for the audiences of Salt Lake City and Utah, it gives us a chance to explore things that wouldn't necessarily be in a subscription season of a symphony orchestra. And they can be all sorts of things. So, um, this last week we performed Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, um, a Bruckner motet to start the, the evening, followed by the third act of Berg's Wozzeck semi-staged. And of course, this is a way of looking at a beloved masterwork, but in a larger context of being able to say, Ah, this really is a contemporary work, and it speaks to me as, you know, a, a contemporary person living in the world that I do, living in the same world that the musicians live in. So even if we're presenting something that's 200 years old, um, the Ninth Symphony will be celebrating its um, 200th anniversary in May. Um, it's still something that speaks to all of us through time. And so that's that's one way of exploring things. And then sometimes, as in the next time I'm here in December, it will be just a normal, quote-unquote, symphonic program. But of course, the the... The thematic of that one is how does a composer understand place, right? And and place is very much a part of what an orchestra is, right? The problems that might be fe- facing culture around the globe are similar, right? There's a, a tremendous um, request for people's time from all sorts of things, whether it's social media or whether it's from work that through your phones and your various different devices you are chained to actually now 24-7 there isn't this concept of a I now leave my work alone somebody can always get in touch with you Um, just the whole nature of trying to live one's life and what should I give this precious time resource to the solutions to problems like this for arts organizations are always site-specific so the ones that we're looking at here in Utah are really Utah based and that's something that I enjoy interacting with and so a program where Sibelius and Ives and Schumann, Robert Schumann are all looking at what does place mean to me kind of helps us to define what Salt Lake city and environs means to the people who live there. And then the third program, as you mentioned earlier, somehow I as a completely amateur guitarist got roped into this group where there are seven other of the best guitarists in the world, both acoustic and electric, um, all formed a group during the pandemic. Um, and part of the reason of for this was that none of us could get together. So we all got together and did pieces where one of us recorded something and then the other person recorded something on top of that. And we had a great time doing this. And so once the pandemic lifted and I had the creative partnership here, at the orchestra, um, I thought, gee, this is a great time to get all of us together. And so we're, um We're sort of doing a a guitar festival where these um, wonderful guitarists come and play as soloists, both in a solo program, in a chamber music program with members of the orchestra, and then in symphonic programs at Abravanel, where they're all playing. And of course, the the thing that's nice about this is when you think about it, an orchestra has lots of different communities, right? And so it's a metaphor for um, multicultural societies or cities. There are people who only play brass instruments. There are people who only whack things. There are people (laughs) who only use bamboo to make their sound. And there are people who uh, scrape various different kinds of strings, either wound or gut or whatever it is, with the back of the tail of a horse that we hope was asked nicely if we could use its hair before it was put on the bow that's
0: the greatest description yeah. of what an orchestra is well, i've but, ever heard but so exactly so this is
2: exactly like there are some people you know if you go to the ethiopian restaurant and you say where are my silverware they'll say this bread this is what you use right and and it and you, once you get over the initial gee that's a little strange you realize that it's a delicious way to eat food or to go to a place where you say um are, do i have utensils and they say yes these two sticks are what you use to eat everything and you say Noodles? And they say, oh yes, especially, right? So that this is, I feel very much the way the orchestral groups are. And so it, it makes perfect sense that you have, you know, a string instrument, um, with four strings. Why not invite your cousins who have six strings? And so this means that, you know, it's kind of like a family reunion of the larger extended family with the guitar.
0: I, My relationship with Utah Symphony now is fairly oblique. I worked here for 15 years but now I host this podcast with my friend Carol and I also annotate the programs for the symphony, write some articles for the opera. So I've gotten to experience your programming as an annotator and it's been very exciting to me Mm -hmm. to write about Wozzeck for instance. That never happens in, in, in a symphony annotator's life. But I would venture to say knowing what I know about you that this is not an anomaly. You program this way and always right. have, right? Yeah. This is not just something you're toying with here. You think this way in all of your roles. Right. Because, you know, I think
2: it was back in the um, very early 90s. I was um, looking around at various different sort of areas and following opera and dividing my time between opera performances and symphonic performances and then, you know, ensemble with contemporary music pieces and I was struggling with this idea of the live art form, right? Because it's very difficult, and you have this horrible statement, but it's actually true that the marketing department is working hard to get butts on seats. Mm. Um, And that sounds really crass, but at the same time, it is this this aspect of how can you invite somebody to come and see something, particularly something that they haven't experienced before? That's, I think, the, the trickiest thing. And we know this from restaurants. People go into a restaurant, and they always have the veal piccata. And you say, "Actually, would you like to try the scallop Milanese?" And they go, "No, I want the veal piccata, right?" And you go, "Well, but it's the same kind of basic. It's just a little dip, No, I want right. So this is a this is a human thing. It's natural. And so I was I was you know working with um, someone, and they said, "Actually, the thing that." i do in opera and theater is not to feel threatened by film and television right because you could say ah live music is threatened by recordings in a certain sense yes but only if you realize that there are there is in theater there is in opera there is in a live concert a number uh there there is a, a thing that you can do there that you cannot reproduce adequately or at all in a film, or a television, or a radio performance, or a recorded performance. But those specific qualities are the things you need to look at. So one of the aspects that I love in theatre is going in and seeing a play which has lots of complex ideas, and they all interact, and there are various different themes. And when you talk afterwards, no two people seem to have the same experience of that theater piece. Vaguely similar, right? Everyone knows if they've seen a doll's house, what's going on with uh, the main character and what are the sort of forces. But, But in the real details, everyone picks up something different. And so when I look at a concert program, I try to think of this as create an unrepeatable connection between the different pieces that are on the program. A little bit like when you go into a really beautifully organized room in an art gallery and you have three paintings. Quite often they're done, in a sense, a little bit like you might see recordings in, a, in, in, in the old time record stores or on, even on, a, um, on Amazon or um, some sort of website. Where they organize them around, if you like Brandenburg three, you'll like Brandenburg two, you'll like Brandenburg four, and so you just so and so. The idea is we're going to have a concert of all the Brandenburg concertos. Wait a minute, can we maybe say let's put Brandenburg three together with Stravinsky Dumbarton Oaks concerto, which is inspired by that, but also maybe go to an earlier piece that inspired Bach in the idea of the Brandenburg concertos, say. Um, one of the Italian concertos. Um, Possibly even put a motet where there are uh, interacting and connected voices. And then possibly also have some piece that is um, connected up to this notion of passing off the idea. So that, in other words, a kind of round table discussion about music, which is what all these pieces are in the end. It's not all they are, but it's one of the aspects. And so suddenly you, you have that concert or you have the room in the gallery where you have a, a Monet and a Chardin and a Picasso, and you say, wait, I see these connections between them, which if you weren't in that room, you'd never really have thought about. So the idea for me is when you come into a concert, it's, it may have pieces that you already know, that you have heard before, that you love, but the connection and correspondence between that piece and others on the program will reveal to you things both about that piece itself and about um, ideas and thoughts and correspondences that beforehand you hadn't come across. And what that means is that that program is the justification for having a live group of musicians who are expensive to maintain at a high level and require you to leave your abode and your cozy home and go to a place that is not your home and pay attention to it. And if I think if we do this right, the reward for your attention is something that is indescribably wonderful.
1: I am really struck by the fact Jeff and I have been seeing a thread through some of the conversations we we're planning for the season about uh, talking about these pieces that are eminently familiar and why we should bother seeing them again. Right. Why do we want to see a La Boheme? Well, we know that when you go to see that La Boheme, you'll never have that moment ever again in theater with those, that cast, and right. those they do that moment. And right. Even though they will be another performance Right. same cast, it will never be the same. And so it's as if we asked you to speak to that theme just now because no one will ever hear Beethoven 9 the same way who hears it through the lens of their band. Okay.
2: No, and the, the interesting thing is, Um, All of us have memorized poems at some point. Um, And, you know, for for the uh, present generation, they may not be poems of Wordsworth or John Donne. They may be um, a poem from their favorite rap artist. That's fine. The point is, when you come back to that poem, for whatever reason, after 10 years, you suddenly see different things in it. And it's not that those words have changed. It's that you, the participant of that artistic experience have changed and have a different perspective and so you bring something to it yourself that you couldn't bring in your former self and this is the thing that that happens so you know a work like bohem which is so glorious and um you know so amazing when you see it as a young person it's fabulous and wonderful and and then when you have gone through a certain amount of life and you have um you know been with a partner and you've seen all this suddenly aspects of of human connection and love and friendship and the complexity of emotions that you saw were in it at the first time you have the feeling you're understanding them for the first time yourself after a familiarity with the work for years and of course this is this is wonderful I was talking to a, a driver um, who was driving around Herbert Blomstedt right and Herbert Blomstedt is now 95 I believe and the the man was saying you know and he was he was sitting there with the score and and he said yes I always studied the score and the man said but haven't you performed it he said, oh yes I've performed this for over 50 years but i still study it because you you always find something new in it and i think this is probably the most optimistic thing anyone could ever say because it it can coincides with um robert schumann's wonderful aphorism as ist das lernens kein ende there is no end to learning education is not goal oriented education is
0: open ended i Love the idea of approaching familiar pieces of music at different stages in life and having unique reactions to it because of where you are personally and in your own relationships. That's one aspect of approaching War Horse's Carol that we hadn't even thought of yet this season. So like you said, you just fell right into kind of an overarching theme for us, which is really incredible. Thank you for that.
1: Don't miss creative partner David Robertson with the Utah Symphony December 8th and 9th for Schumann's Rhenish Symphony or April 19th and 20th for a guitar celebration. Use promo code David for 50% off tickets for these two amazing performances at utahsymphony.org.
0: You mentioned a life with a partner, and I want to talk a little bit about your family because there's a lot of uh, musical um the genes are very strong in your family. You're married to Orly Shaham, wonderful pianist. Yes. She's p- appeared here before. In fact, the one time you and I met previously was when she was with us at the Deer Valley Music Festival. Mm-hmm. Her brother is obviously Gil. Uh, mm-hmm. He That's just up. appeared at my day job, the Grand Teton Music Festival, last summer. Excellent. The the, the tendrils of your family go in many different directions. They do. What's it like being in such
2: royalty? Well, it's interesting. Someone was saying, you know, what's it like being on stage with your brother Gil? And I said, well... It's enormous fun, um, but also nothing can phase us. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, any time that you have seen um, your soloist with spit up in their hair from their one-year-old child, <laughs> it, it just means that, you know, whatever happens in the concert is going to be just fine. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and so there is this, you know, there's a wonderful uh, concert that we did together with the New York Philharmonic. Sorry to name drop on you, um, but he was playing Sebelius' Violin Concerto. And at the very beginning, there's a part at which he has the open G-string. And one of the Star Wars films had just come out, and he was really enjoying playing with this sort of gesture that the Jedi masters make, as you don't want to do this. And they would move their hand. The mind trick. Exactly, from one, one side of their body to the other. And he would release their the hold on the... the fingerboard and then do this gesture while i was conducting the orchestra which of course made me crack up in front of the new york philharmonic and i kept going (laughs) um but it was it was a little annoying that he was doing because i was slightly nervous to be in front of that very brotherly august group but we were we were having fun and then it was fine and you know it was of course he could do this because he felt so comfortable with my accompaniment so we got into the concert right and he's playing and of course in the concert he's totally serious and doesn't do that and you'll you can still see it on the video which doesn't show me but shows gil uh, the camera's on him and i make this gesture at the same place and you see he nearly you know breaks out in in laughing keeps it to a smile and continues playing beautifully right and of course this concerto is in a minor key
1: it's beginning. not a funny concerto so it's
2: not a funny concerto but but this is the sort of thing that one does and um, with Orly, you know, we, we met over music. That was how we first met, playing the, the uber romantic Chopin first piano concerto. So I should have known. Um, <laughs> you didn't stand I, a chance. <laughs> I, I was so <laughs> taken by the, the amazing sort of musicality of the playing that we struck up a musical friendship and it became, you know, something else. And, you know, it's especially when you've been married to someone and raised children with them there's a kind of wavelength that you are both broadcasting on, which is is just total. And so I was actually with um, the Seattle Symphony with her once, and we were doing the D minor piano concerto Mozart. And um, we had a number of performances, and one of the players came up and said, you know, it's uncanny. You are perfectly together with her all the time, and you never look at her. And I thought, oh, that's right." I never look at her maybe I should look at her at some point. so at one point in one of the concerts you know I looked over at her just not because I needed to but I thought maybe I should do this you know we're married and people will and so sure enough she looked up like oh my god something's wrong and fluffed the note and I felt so bad
0: because oh, wow. all
2: of the other performances were note perfect as well as musically perfect but so the one time she messed up is when it was like Wait, what's going on? You right? never look at me. You never look at me. Why? <laughs>
0: That's so,
2: you know, so this is the thing, is that when you have um, a musical family and um, both our our younger boys, who are 16 years old, are both pursuing music, and it looks like they, despite our best sort of efforts to dissuade them, that they, they really want to do this as a profession. And so it's a very musical household
1: the whole time. I was trying to imagine if... Family dinner. If Thanksgiving dinner was a lot of erudite musical conversation and highbrow, or if it's also peppered with ridiculous practical jokes, it sounds like there's a lot of humor in there as well.
2: It's a combination of both. You know, I mean, there will will be discussion about um, you know which version of Matista Mala is the best, or you know, or you know, various different uh, jokes that one can't say on the air. Um, or in a podcast i guess you can in certain podcasts but not this
1: one. david someone tells me that you're no stranger to utah but there's a connection to this state that goes back much further than any of us could imagine
2: yes it goes back all the way to the uh, days before it was a state um i am a part of pioneer stock um some of which came over um the robertson brothers came over um, they backed Bonnie Prince Charlie, which was not a wise political thing. I'm not <laughs> sure we've ever been really politically savvy um, but um, in any case they came over in the 1850s and they moved out west um, and then there were others um, who go all the way back to uh, John Alden on the Mayflower. So that's a you know a kind of crazy side of things. but um, when I was a kid, you know I heard all of these stories about my my grandfather um, who, I am named after um, with David Robertson, and he was a stonemason and actually built a number of um, edifices around in Utah, down from St. George on up to Spanish Fork, and settled in Spanish Fork, and he built his house in Spanish Fork, and in fact, didn't quite get it done in one of the winters. So the family lore has it that he had to find a cave up in the mountains, um, and there in the mountains, he you know spent the winter and made sure to get the the house done by the next winter um so that that and then um you know so many different cousins and and relatives um in the uh, LDS society so that at one point I felt as though I were related to all of Spanish Fork it's not quite true but I walked with my grandfather who left for California um in the uh, around the first world war and um you know, he would just see random people on the street and say, Oh, are you related to Cy Wilkins? And, you know, oh, yeah, that's my granddad. You know, and sort of, and it was like, it was really a little bit spooky um, how he seemed to know everyone in this town. Um, and so I, in, when I was 12, I worked on the hay ranch that the Olson brothers, my second cousins, um, had in Spanish Fork. Um, and that was some of the hardest work I've ever done. And it taught me that that's not work. I am cut out for. Um, but um but it was very it was very exciting and there was a family reunion up in Wyoming where we you know saw all of the um the various different family members extended family um and at one point um uh, my aunt um uh, Merle had something like 93 descendants right and this and I remember you know my my mother had I'm I'm one of three children. I'm the middle child um between two sisters and one of the cousins at this family reunion came into our trailer where we were my mother was cooking lunch and uh she said "Aunt Alice, is there something wrong with you that you only had three children?" And you know, I there thought I I thought I was doing pretty well with <laughs> with three. But of course, you know, a, a couple of the um my father's cousins, you know, were in competition and the, and one of them had seven children and the other one then had eight. And then one of the younger um, brothers of that family just passed him by with 14. And they decided <laughs> to call it quits at that point. Nobody's going to compete with Norman anymore. <laughs> um, so, you know, I spent a lot of time here during uh, the sort of um, early teen years. And I guess I guess that sort of stopped around the time when I was um, really interested in music and therefore didn't have the time to come up around fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Um, but uh I have very fond memories and, you know, I look at the, the Uintas and they, you know, they really do connect with, with deep seated geological memories that I have of the of the place. So it's very it's very sort of it's always interesting flying into the Salt Lake Airport and you fly over these mountains and they they feel somehow familiar, like a sort of a second home.
0: Well, in, in the context you're sharing with us, it feels deep seated that you're back. It seems like it was meant to be. And it's just so great to have you as part of the Utah Symphony as a creative partner. Before we let you go, we do like to ask some stock sort of podcasty questions to our guests because we get really interesting responses back. One of the questions we often ask is, you're at a certain point in your life where you are now dispensing wisdom to students. You're an educator and Mm you, you take that very seriously. Is there something that you look back on your schooling days that you wish the professors or teachers that imprinted on you had told you then? Is there something that you can look back on and wish you'd been told something you've learned in the meantime? You know, I think this is a universal. I
2: mean, all of us, um, when I was a kid, my father bent over backwards to get me the, Best train set ever, and I like trains. But clearly, this was the I didn't have this train set when I was a kid because we were moving all the time, and I really would have wished it. And now we're stable, and so my son's going to have a train set. Um, I think that's normal, right? Every parent feels that way; they want to, you know, give something to their children. I was very fortunate in that both my parents supported all sorts of different things. So, you know, through grandparents i i can fly fish i can ride horses i you know can build model airplanes i can do all of these things that have nothing to do with my profession and that i don't exercise presently um doesn't mean that i'm the person around the house who if a picture needs to be put up i'm the only one who you know is is given the task um fixing the toilet as well that's <laughs> another you know the it, it these things tend to s- extend out like a a stone dropped in a pond um but I think in, in the educational sphere, one of the um, things that I do at Juilliard with the graduate conductors is there were all sorts of things that I had to learn kind of um, just in the course of doing the job. And therefore made some stupid mistakes that you know, stubbed my toe in various places where had I known better, things might have helped. So for the next generations, what I've tried to work out, for example, at Juilliard is a program in which, unlike when I finished my uh, official schooling um, and I had to suddenly learn all of these things in situation, by the time they finish the two years, they're actually ready if an opportunity comes along for them to be a music director of a uh, of a small group somewhere. He or she will be perfectly prepared to handle everything. They may not have had the experience, but they know the things that are going to be coming at them. The number of scores, the different groups that they're working with, whether it's in marketing or whether it's in public relations, whether it's the stage manager, whether it's the personnel manager, what the job of an artistic administrator is, what an executive director does, what the role of uh, board chair is, what it's like with agents. All of these different things are part of the curriculum, as well as the, you know, part of the, the, the course is they put on a recital. So they work on the program. Um, They may run it by me, but they don't have to. They choose the musicians who play that from the students who are at Juilliard. They organize the rehearsals. They talk to the library to get everything worked out. And they have to do all of that. And so while there are certain parts of the program where I'm very definitely holding their hands and shepherding them, there are other parts that I let them you know, work on trying to do something, because often our mistakes teach us a great deal, right? That's the George Bernard Shaw quip that experience is the name we give to our mistakes. Um, But it's true. If you have, um, you know, once burned twice, careful. um, uh, Measure twice, cut once. You know, you, you learn these things sometimes the hard way and that helps, but it is helpful to create an environment in which many of these things are available. And what's fascinating, I find, is that students will often come back and say, you know, so many of the things that we talked about, I didn't realize the actual importance until I was in this situation. And I think that's the best you can hope for in any sort of um, educational environment. There are, There are moments in my past where I've been so incredibly lucky. And I think the most important lesson that anyone realizes as you go further in the profession and you have seen your colleagues along the way is the people who are successful and however that success is defined, right? Not necessarily outwardly, but internally, are the people who just didn't give up, who just kept going. You know, everyone has um, things they can count on, talents, and things that they feel they need to shore up, things that that they wish were always better. You're going to have to deal with those your whole life. So deal with them. Do the very best you can. And as my mother-in-law says, which I think is the most brilliant um, advice you could possibly have, she says, you can only do your best. And when you look at that in sort of, first of all, it's, uh, eine it's a sort of a relaxation. Oh, you can only do your best. You shouldn't ask yourself to do more than your best. And then the flip side of that is, you can only do your best. So don't let it be less than your best, right? So it's its this wonderful thing that's both encouraging and yet keeps you looking at the highest standard
0: you could possibly manufacture and do. Simple and just simply true, yeah, that sentiment. that's it.
1: David, this has been a wonderful conversation and I look forward to many more when you come back to Salt Lake, maybe not on the podcast, but uh, around. Although you're
0: pretty good at podcasts, I think you should do more of it. No, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> he's, oh, he's a regular, he's
1: a regular <laughs> guest from here on out. But uh, we look forward to seeing you again in December and then in the spring. Uh, until then, where can our listeners find you on the social medias? Uh,
2: I think uh, conductor David Robertson is the thing to look up. There's. My website is a .com, I believe, and then Instagram and Facebook.
0: Well, on behalf of everyone here at Utah Symphony, thank you so much for taking this creative partnership on and thank you for being on the Ghostlight Podcast today. Thank you very much, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you also to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us get new listeners. For questions about the show, Or to suggest a topic, you can reach us at ghostlight at USUO.org. And be sure to visit USUO.org proper for information about upcoming performances, including those we spoke about today. We hope to see you soon at a live concert here at Abravanel Hall or at the Capitol Theater. Until next time, I'm Jeff Counts.
1: And I'm Carol Anderson. Thanks for listening.
0: The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera Season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.